cliffcentral.com. I want to welcome to the show today somebody who I follow as a, a regular source of proper information and the kind of person who, who makes sense of some things that don't seem to make a lot of sense these days. He is an American conservative. He is uh, what he describes as himself a small L libertarian. He's a talk show host, an author, a politician, an attorney, also someone who's produced uh, a great documentary. The last time I spoke to him was on my TV show, uh, where we did uh, a, a year's uh, worth of programs, and Larry was one of the most popular guests we had on then. I welcome him again, knowing that whatever he's going to say to us today is probably going to be the kind of thing that you will remember for a very long time going into this crazy election year in the United States. He is none other than Larry Elder. Larry, it's so good to see you. How are you? Mr. Cliff, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's always good to see you, and I'm glad to see that you're thriving. In fact, I, everywhere I look at the moment, I'm seeing even mainstream media outlets are starting to make good use of your experience and wisdom to try and understand the craziness of this, uh, this as I said, election year, but also this pretty bizarre presidency that we're, you know, the whole world is feeling the, the, the bad decision-making of. Um, Joe Biden's been president now for almost two years, and one and a half, almost two years. And, and he's, you know, he's just, I don't even know if he knows that he's president at this stage. Well, he's, um, the reason he's president, uh, Gareth, is because Bernie Sanders won what was called the Nevada caucuses during the, the campaign for 2020. And for one brief shining moment, a self-described Democrat socialist was the party's front runner. They were scared, bleepless. Everybody uh, coalesced behind Joe Biden because they thought that he was at least be a moderate who would uh, turn down the temperature regarding Donald Trump. It would not be incompetent. And they figured he was old and, and daughtery and he wouldn't last till 2024. And then they'd move in Kamala Harris. That was the game plan. Now, <clears throat> moving, moving in Kamala Harris, I mean, this is interesting too, because it would be fine if you had a president who was maybe, you know, struggling a little. I mean, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wasn't exactly all there in the last few months of his presidency. It was a tough time for him, too. He had health concerns and all sorts of other things. There have been other presidents who've had to call in their vice president. I mean, famously, you know, when Richard Nixon went, there was a crisis and, and Gerald Ford was brought in. But Kamala Harris, if she had to take over, would almost make things worse. You're, you're right, but it doesn't really matter. You see, uh, blacks are the most loyal part of the Democratic base, and black women even more loyal than the men. Uh, and while Kamala Harris has lower poll numbers than, than Joe Biden does nationwide, she's polling close to the 70% uh, rate among blacks. And I'm not seeing it broken down by gender, but I'm sure with black females, she's around 75%. That's relevant because in the early primaries like Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, Black voters are 50 percent or more of the Democratic voters in the primary. And if black females perceive Kamala Harris to have been dropkicked in favor of somebody else, especially in favor of a white male like Gavin Newsom or Mayor Pete Buttigieg, they will not vote Republican. They simply won't vote. So they are stuck with her. The only way they get rid of Kamala Harris is if Kamala Harris says, you know what? I'm vacuous. Uh, I'm incompetent. Uh, I, I did a terrible job as vice president. I want to leave. She's not going to do that. She wants to be president. She ran for the presidency. She didn't do very well, dropped out early, but she wanted to be president. So the only way Kamala Harris goes is if she says, I want to go. She's not going to do it. No matter what they say, no matter what the media says, Garrett, I promise you, if Biden is not the nominee in 2024, Kamala Harris will be. Hmm. Well, is that good news for Republicans? But before we get to the answer to that, and, and <laughs> you being a self-confessed uh, Republican, you've been called many worse things than that by the, the media. But let's just talk for a minute about something you said just now. You said uh, black voters are very loyal 
and black female voters more than any other group in America. Right. Why do you think that is? And, and how has it been that the, the Democratic Party has been able to rely reliably on black voters and black female voters in particular when they've done so little to deliver for them? Well, let me answer the, your latter part first. The reason the Democratic Party has been successful in convincing black people to vote for them is that they've been successful in convincing black people that systemic racism remains a major problem in America. And these dastardly people over there, also known as Republicans, are in the way of fighting for social justice. Uh, they have... Uh, They've, they've t tailored the history of the Democratic Party to exclude the fact that they were the party of slavery, the party of Jim Crow. And they've convinced Democrats that uh, the, the policies of the Democrats, blacks, rather, the policy of the Democratic Party will advance the interests of black America. Never mind, as you pointed out, the horrible consequences of these policies, not least of which have been the so-called war on poverty that was launched by a Democrat in the mid-60s. At the time, 25% of blacks entered the world without a father married to the mother. Today, fast forward, 70% of blacks enter the world without a father married to the mother. And Barack Obama said a kid raised without a father is five times more likely to be poor and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in jail. Now, the question is, how do they go from having 25% of black kids born outside of wedlock in 65 to 70% today? The answer is the welfare state. The welfare state has incentivized women to marry the government and incentivized men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And the Democratic Party has convinced black people that this is not really a problem. The only problem really is systemic racism, enduring racism, foundational racism, racism, choose your favorite adjective. And that's the, that's the, that's the magic dust, the pixie dust that they've thrown in the faces of black America. And that's why I've done these two documentaries, Uncle Tom 1, which came out in 2020, and Uncle Tom 2, which comes out on August the 26th, to talk about the fact that after slavery, Garrett, when we're talking about uh, almost, almost 100% illiteracy, hor horrific, horrific uh, racism, uh, Jim Crow, KKK, black people, still move forward. In 1940, 87% of blacks lived below the poverty line. 40 years later, that number had reduced to 47%. That's a 40-point drop in 20 years, the biggest 20-year period of economic growth in the history of black America. And that was before all the Civil Rights Act legislation of the mid-60s, before the Supreme Court ruled that you cannot outlaw uh, interracial marriage, uh, even before the, the so-called Brown versus Board of Education that struck down separate but equal. They still move forward. Why? Families, belief in entrepreneurship, and belief in God. Fast forward, Uncle Tom, too, talks about the parade now being led by people like Black Lives Matter. 85% mm -hmm. of black people support the Black Lives Matter movement, even though uh, it was founded by self-described trained Marxists. And as you well know, Marx wanted to, quote, dethrone God, which was the pillar of black progress following slavery. He's anti-private uh, pri property, uh, which means he's anti-entrepreneurship. And on their website, on their website, they talked about their opposition to the nuclear intact family. So the pillars the family, God, entrepreneurship that made black America grow uh, in the face of horrific, of horrific racism is now being uh, touted as bad things by organizations like Black Lives Matter. Larry, you know, I'm always very careful to not force anybody to answer on behalf of their race. Unfortunately, this seems to happen to black people far more than it happens to white people. You know, anytime you say anything as a black man, then it, it, it stands to reason that you're speaking on behalf of a community. Whereas very few people, when they ask a white person that, assume that he or she is talking about the entire white community, whatever that might be. And, you know, there are black people with different opinions. There are white people with different opinions. You probably have more in common with me in terms of our polit political uh, ideology or perhaps our, our leaning than 
than maybe I have with uh, another white person in, in Los Angeles. The fact is, though, that a lot of these things that you've just said, are they seem to be problems which are not going away. Uh, I mean, a 70% fatherlessness, uh, the, the, the huge recidivism, um, the amount of, 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 of kind of low social uh, economic status that, that so many black people in America have to endure. A lot of these problems, if you don't interrogate them, it does look like it's the system. The irony seems to be that they want to use the system. And I say they, I mean the Democrats here, not black people. But right, it seems right. that they're promising to fix something which the system has obviously messed up, according to that narrative, by using the system again, which is counterintuitive. How do we fix these problems? And if, if you had to suddenly be president, how would, you, how would you tackle the problems that black people face without, again, speaking on behalf of all black people? Well, Gareth, have no fear <clears throat> that most black people uh, do not think that Larry Yoda speaks for most black people. During my campaign for governor, I was called the black face of white supremacy by a black LA Times columnist. Another one said that my views were white supremacists. So uh, believe me, most black people don't think Larry Yoda speaks for black people. Uh, how do you solve these problems? You tell the truth. Uh, the, the route to leave poverty is uh, just a handful of, 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 of steps. Number one, finish high school. Ideally, one where you can read, write, and compute at grade level. We have a 50% dropout rate in many of our urban high schools. And in the city of Baltimore, which is majority black, there are 13 public high schools, 13 in the inner city, where 0% of blacks can do math at grade level. And another six where only 1% can. So we have a massive, massive problem with our urban education, which can be solved through school choice. Uh, Let parents choose the school. Let the money follow the child rather than the other way around. Hmm. The other big problem, of course... Uh, is is crime. And all of this is because of not having a father in the house. So uh, uh, no, no matter how badly uh, you are dealt your hand, it is your obligation, your duty to pick those cards up and play them to the best of your ability. Life is still all about choices. And this is still America where uh, people in Cuba are braving shark infested waters to get here. People from Haiti are coming up here, Central America, South America. Why? Because America is systemically racist? Nonsense. Because it is a place where if you bust your butt, work hard, stay focused, uh, you can make it. And that is the message that people need to be telling black kids uh, in America all over, as opposed to you are a victim. You are a victim of of enduring uh, uh, racism, which is what I think one of the Democratic candidates said. One of the other ones called it foundational racism. Nonsense. Mm-hmm. In 1940, one of my close friends uh, is, the, is the great Thomas Sowell, who's still with us. He's in the mid-90s. He was described by David Mamet as America's greatest living philosopher. Black man, written about 40 books. He's an economist. He tells me in, ni- in the 1940s, when he grew up uh, in East Harlem, uh, all, the all-black schools were competitive with the all-Irish schools and the all-Italian schools that were on the Lower East Side. They didn't, ha- didn't have this big academic gap because people cared about education and fathers were in the home and they encouraged kids to go to school. That has all changed because, as I said, of the welfare state and the large number of black kids who enter the world without a father married to the mother. Until and unless we start talking about the 800-pound elephant in the room, and often Republicans don't even talk about this, nothing is going to change. I'm so glad you brought up Thomas Sowell because I have a number of his books here, and this man was way ahead of his time. Um, and, you know, I think about it often. Some of the people who are who are the leading minds in America that I look to, Thomas Sowell among them, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, who's probably one of the foremost, if not the number one physicist alive in the world today. You know, there are some great people here, and I don't really think that any of them are doing too badly if you are going to, to say, you know, how they're doing representing black people. But then it seems to me that there are some black people in America who just have been crowned, whether or not that's by intention or by their own wily political behavior. But 
you know, if I look at, at Al Sharpton and, and, and Jesse Jackson, both of whom have come to South Africa on a number of occasions, they've, they, they're always the guys who come out and speak on behalf of, which you claim not to, I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to reiterate so that people don't get this wrong. How is it that those two guys who, who really have traded on this whole systemic racism thing for the longest time, and in some ways try to characterize themselves as the heirs to the Martin Luther Kings and, you know, the, 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 the great civil rights leaders of that era, even if they're not, how is it that they manage to be the people, the go-to people that the media always end up talking to whenever there's an issue of racial nature, whenever there's something that happens to someone in a black community, whenever there's right. a, a police shooting or anything like that? Why is it Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson? Well, uh, one of my good friends uh, is Walter Williams. He's also an economist and a close friend of, um, of uh, Thomas Sowell. Uh, Walter Williams just died a year ago. He refers to them as race hustling poverty pimps. Uh, he believes that they have co-opted the civil rights movement uh, and gone from demanding equal rights to demanding equal results. Uh, and I, interestingly about Jesse Jackson and um, Al Sharpton, uh, Jesse Jackson grew up in South Carolina and his mother was a uh, teenager who got impregnated by the married man who lived next door. So Jesse Jackson grew up without a father in the house and he was taunted. Jesse ain't got no daddy. Jesse ain't got no daddy. Clearly, it wounded him. Al Sharpton had a nice middle class life until his father ran away with another woman and down to the hood he went. Uh, the reason I mention that uh, is neither of these men had a good relationship with their own fathers, but they rarely talk about that, uh, and which is the number one problem facing black America. They talk about racism, 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 when racism has never been a less significant problem in America, Barack Obama won with a greater percentage of the white vote than his predecessor, John Kerry, did four years earlier. And while Barack Obama only got 52 percent of the vote when he walked into the Oval Office the third week of January 2009, Gareth, he had 70 percent approval. A whole bunch of people who didn't vote for him nevertheless wanted him to succeed. Why? Because they thought he was going to be a racial reconciliator. And, and when in, and you look at the polls, when he came into office, the majority of whites, majority of blacks, both thought that race relations would improve. When he left, majority of whites and blacks thought race relations got worse. Because every time Obama had a chance to be the racial reconciliator that a lot of people hired him to be, he picked up the race card and he played it. The Cambridge police acted stupidly. If I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. Uh, there's a place called Ferguson, even though Ferguson was alive. Uh, America has racism in its DNA. And he invited who I consider to be the, the, one of the preeminent race hustlers in America, Al Sharpton, to the White House over 70 times. There's even a picture of uh, Barack Obama as a senator next to a smiling Louis Farrakhan, who's America's preeminent anti-Semite. So Barack Obama talked the talk about racial conciliation, but he governed, uh, frankly, as somebody who's divided us and played the race card. Time and time and time again. Why? Not because he truly believed racism was a major problem in America. I believe, Gareth, if he and I were in the room together, we'd be completing each other's sentences about racism. But he understood that in order to get elected, you have to convince 13% of the population, which are blacks, to vote 90, 90, 90, 90 or 95% for the Democratic Party. The only way to do that is to tell black people that they are victims. That's what he's done, and I find it absolutely repulsive. Isn't it also really condescending and patronizing? And doesn't it make you think that at some point, uh, the average black American, whoever that he or she may be, is going to get a little annoyed by being spoken down to like this and being counted without actually being asked what their opinion is on something just because they vote in a loyal direction? 
And I think you're right. Uh, it is condescending, especially for somebody like Barack Obama. Led a charm life, went to the finest prep school in Hawaii, went to Columbia for undergraduate, Ivy League, a Harvard graduate uh, for law school, becomes the first black president of the of the Harvard Law Review, uh, teaches at University of Chicago School of Law, uh, becomes a senator, uh, becomes president. Uh, he's had a wonderful, wonderful life, which shows you what can happen if you work hard, uh, you stay focused, and you have a vision. Uh, as to if blacks are going to wake up, I think it's beginning to happen slowly but surely. Uh, in 2008, when Barack Obama won, Republicans only got 4% of the, of the black vote. 2012, when he ran for re-election, by the way, governed over the worst economic recovery in American history. Between 2010 and 2013, black America lost one-third of their net, uh, net worth because of the, of the recession. Uh, and then in 2016, when uh, Donald Trump ran the first time, uh, blacks uh, voted 8% for the Republican Party. Uh, he delivered the greatest economic uh, economy for blacks ever. Uh, he pardoned the first black heavyweight champion, uh, Jack Johnson. Uh, a 15-year effort led by Ken Burns, the documentarian. Even Obama didn't pardon him. George W. Bush didn't pardon him. Pardon him. Trump did. Uh, Trump also did something about the borders. The reason that's important for blacks is because most of the people coming to the country illegally on our southern border are unskilled. And therefore, they compete for jobs against unskilled blacks living in the inner city and put downward pressure on their wages. Uh, Trump also supports school choice, as I do. He also supports something called opportunity zones that lower taxes and, and uh, regulations in the inner city to create jobs for black people. He put funding for black colleges on a permanent basis for 10 years, the only person to do that. Uh, he also passed something called the First Step Act, which allowed uh, prisoners, most of them were black men, to have their long sentences re reconsidered. And the average black man had his sentence reduced around 70 uh, months, about 5,000 of them did. So Trump did all of that. And when he ran for re-election, he got 12% of the black vote and 20% of the black male vote. So it's going in the, quote, wrong direction for Democrats. And as a result, they're doubling down on calling America systemically racist and doubling down on referring to uh, Republicans and to Trump uh, as bigots. You know, you said something just now, which is going to bristle with a lot of people, the idea that race relations have actually never been better in some ways, and, and that certainly the case for black Americans has probably never been better than it was under Trump. Of course, this upsets a lot of people on the left, and you hear the immediate retorts, so I've got to be the devil's advocate and say, oh, but there is a lot of racism. This is, and, and you know, to, to a lot of people on the left, it seems that either you are saying that there's no racism, which you haven't said, right. and which I can't remember anyone in the Republican Party ever saying that there's no such thing as racism or it's all been extinguished and racism is dead. Nobody's ever said that, but that seems to be the argument. How do you refute that when people on college campuses say this to you? Well, and they do. Uh, I often get a question when I have the Q&A at a college. Mr. Elliott, now you say there's no racism in America. I said, oh, hold, hold the phone. $100,000 to your favorite charities in a bank right now. Uh, if you can find when Larry Elder either said or wrote, there's no racism in America. And the $100,000 is still earning interest, Gareth. I, I would say two things. What people talk about are opportunities. And they talk about uh, uh, police brutality. Um, there was a magazine called policemag.com. And self-described, very liberal people were asked, how many unarmed blacks did the police kill in 2019? And half of the self-described, very liberal people said that a thousand unarmed black men were killed by the police in 2019. 8% thought 10,000 unarmed blacks were killed in 2019. What you, what you ask, do regular liberals think? Well, 39% of regular liberals thought that the police killed 1,000 unarmed black men in 2019. And 5% thought they killed 
10,000. The answer is, according to the Washington Post database, 12. And in fact, the police killed twice as many unarmed white men as black men. If anything, the studies show the police are more hesitant, more reluctant to pull the trigger on a black suspect than a white suspect. Now, this is broadly unknown, both in the black community and the white community. It is a lie that the police are engaging in police brutality. Are, you, are there bad cops like Derek, Derek Chauvin? Absolutely. But you deal with them on a case-by-case basis. Even the black prosecutor, uh, who the lead prosecutor in prosecuting Derek Chauvin, never said that what Derek Chauvin did had to do with George Floyd's race. And he was very careful in his opening statement to say the Minneapolis Police Department is not on trial. All cops are not on trial. This individual is on trial. So we need to deal with these things on a case-by-case basis. Regarding opportunity, think about this. There was a study that showed a black person with a certain set of grades and a certain SAT compared to a white person, same grade, same SAT, had a much higher chance of getting into the college or university of his or her choice. So it's easier for a black person to get into a college or university. Every single Fortune 500 company has a outreach program or a diversity program or some sort of program to make sure that their workforce is diverse because they feel it makes sense uh, to recruit a good staff and it makes sense for marketing purposes. Racism uh, is very expensive to practice, and those who practice it very much end up uh, being hurt in the marketplace. One quick story. I lived in Cleveland for a few years. I moved there in 1977, and when I got there, the Cavaliers, the basketball team was doing very badly. The stadium was in the suburb of Cleveland about an hour away. Don't ask me why. Uh, and most of the um, people around that suburb were white. A guy named Ted Stepien ba- vowed to buy the Cavaliers, and he said, when I buy them, I'm going to make sure they're more white starting players because I believe the team is not performing well uh, in the box office because white people want to watch white people play basketball. He bought the team, and he did just that, Gareth. Four of the five starting players were white. The team drew fewer players, uh, fewer fans than they did the year before. They lost more games. Surprise, surprise, white people didn't like watching white people lose any more than they liked watching black people lose. And because he traded away, because he traded away the top picks of his, of his uh, team uh, two years in a row, the NBA took the team away from him, implemented, implemented a rule called the Stepien Rule so that no owner going forward could ever trade back-to-back number one picks. That's what happens when you practice discrimination in the marketplace. People will punish you. White people don't want to go, to go to a corporation, a patronizing corporation, if they feel that that corporation is systemically racist. What, what's the upside in being perceived as a racist organization, a racist for-profit company in America? There's no upside. But the the demand for racism seems to outstrip the supply in so many ways, which is why organizations like Black Lives Matter and like so many others, including obviously college campuses, the academic world and Democrat politicians seem to hop on to any issue they think will gain them easy points with black people. This again can be seen if you zoom out a little bit as being tremendously patronizing and it it must great. It must great you and so many other independent thinkers in the black community or people who are just trying to live their lives, that they're being treated as numbers in a huge group rather than as individuals. Well, you're right about the demand for racism outstripping the supply. Uh, The big one was, again, the death of George Floyd. As I said before, there's zero evidence that whatever Derek Chauvin did had to do with George Floyd's race. Yet we had four months of protests in the streets 
where at least 25 people were killed, 2,000 officers wounded, and about $2 billion in damage. We had that ridiculous Jossie Smollett story where he claimed that a bunch of MAGA wearing, two MAGA wearing uh, guys in Chicago jumped him at two o'clock in the morning as he was coming back from Subway with his tuna fish foot lawn. Uh, we've had the story of Bubba Wallace, who allegedly had a noose in his garage. Turned out it was just a, a pull rope, not a noose. And there's a book by a guy named Wilfred Riley that documented over 500 fake hate crimes over the last several years, pushed by black people, bought by the media because the media has invested itself in this bogus narrative that racism remains a major problem in America. The fact that when there is a, an incident of racism, for example, recently there's a amusement park called Sesame Place in Philadelphia. And there's a Muppet character named Rosita who appeared to be ignoring the black kids while high-fiving the white kids. I'm not sure whether or not that was done intentionally. I have no idea. But a number of people that went to that park over the years after the story became big produced video that seemed to suggest these characters were, in fact, ignoring uh, 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 black kids in favor of white kids. What happened? Uh, Rosetta has now been fired. Uh, the Sesame Place has apologized. They're now conducting an outreach in order to uh, hire more black people because in the marketplace, they are being punished. There's a Rosetta restaurant uh, that has now been shut down because of all of this. There's no upside in practicing discrimination. There's a huge downside, however, uh, in, uh, in, in a huge downside uh, in, in practicing discrimination. So uh, it's just not true. Again, individuals, hell, 8% of Americans, Gareth, believe uh, Elvis is still alive. Six percent believe you send him a letter, he'll get it. So you have to wipe, you have to write off about thirty million Americans uh, from from the get go. I don't know what to say about that. Well, I, I I'm also very aware of the fact that you and I are sitting here. And we've talked for twenty six minutes about race and and racism, and there's so much more I want to get into with you. But the final word on this really is, I suppose, down to American politics and how you see it unfolding in the future, because. We, we, we're going to move on to some other things, which I'm, I'm sure that you have plenty to say about. But where do you think things are going to go? You mentioned earlier that the, the, the black vote seems to be moving, albeit incrementally. We know the Hispanic vote in, Amer- in America moving very much more dramatically at the moment. Right. Where right. do you think that the average black voter in 20 years who might look back on this conversation and go, oh, wow, these guys were either completely wrong or they were right. Let's give them a reason to say these guys were right. And, and let's put your predictive powers to play. I, I think America could probably do with, um, with, with a, a lot more quality candidates, white, black, Democrat and Republican. But what do you think the votes are going to turn out to be in the next few years? I think if, uh, if black people stop uh, focusing on nonsense, stop focusing on things like critical race theory, stop buying the uh, the bull that's being pushed by people like Barack Obama uh, and Al Sharpton, uh, black people will be just fine. Let me give you one example. 2007, during the primary, when Barack Obama on the Democratic side was competing against Hillary, uh, and on the, on the Republican side, you had John McCain competing against Mitt Romney. Gallup asked black, black, ask America, what percentage of you would not vote for a black person? 2007, 5% said they would never vote for a black person. What percentage would never vote for a female, referring to Hillary? 11% say they would never vote for, for a female. What percentage of you would never vote for a Mormon, referring to Mitt Romney? 24% say they would never vote for a Mormon. What percentage of you would vote for somebody who'd be as old as John McCain would be if he became president? At the time, he would have been 72 years old. Now that seems young, but back then that seemed old. 42% said they would not vote for somebody who would be as old as John McCain. So Barack Obama had a lower threshold than the three more popular white politicians. That was 2007. So 
the, the future in America I mean, by, is, those, by those numbers, we could we could say that, uh, that, that, that perhaps sexism is twice the problem racism is. And exactly. ageism may be the biggest problem of all. And, and, and hostility to being a Mormon might be a bigger problem than that. Right. My point yeah. is that... Or, or being an atheist. We know that that's an unpopular position. In America. Absolutely. All I'm saying is black... Barack Obama, as a black person, had a lower barrier than these three more popular, more experienced white politicians. So knock it off. In this business about Donald Trump sending a racist dog whistle in order to get elected, think about this. There were two... There were 700 counties... Uh, that both voted for Obama 2008, 2012, 700. In 2016, 200 of those 700 switched over to Donald Trump. Uh, what were they bitten by a racist radioactive spider from 2012 to 2016? And the city that most voted for Donald Trump of over 100,000 was Abilene, Texas in 2016. Around 80, 85% of people in that town voted for Donald Trump. Guess which town promptly then voted for its first black mayor in 138 years? You got it, Abilene, Texas. Now, how is it that Donald Trump sent a racist dog whistle to get white people to vote for him and the same racist white people then voted for a black mayor to run their city? It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. And all you're doing is telling people you're eternal victims if you're black and telling white people you're eternal oppressors. And it's just an affront to common sense and an affront to the reality of what's going on in America right now. Well, a lot of what you're saying is an affront to people who don't believe in common sense or who certainly act as if they don't believe it. And you receive a lot of uh, heat for what you say in the media, what you say on your, on your own shows, what you've said in your documentary, Uncle Tom. I believe there's another one you mentioned coming out soon. And you've already told us that you've received the epithet of being the black face of white supremacy, which is, I mean, it's insulting on a level that, uh, that very few uh, people could ever really get, get to grips with. Um, it, it it strikes me as um, slightly annoying, and I'm I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be Larry Elder for five minutes. When you live in a state like California, which is one of the more liberal states in America, it's a blue state. You've got a a governor who you also tried to uh, eject from his position uh, not so long ago. Uh, you you've you've made a mark in the entertainment business. Uh, you've been around a long time and, and people think it's okay to throw these labels at you. How do you deal with this stuff on a daily basis? How does it make you feel when you wonder whether or not other black people are looking at you going, oh, he's that, he's that guy who's, uh, you know, he's with the Republicans or he's a sellout or whatever else they call you? Well, I, I feel sorry for them because it shows me that uh, you have uh, drunk the Kool-Aid. The left has convinced you uh, not only that America remains a systemically racist country, but that somebody black like Larry Oda comes along and says it's not true. I become the enemy. That's how successful they've been uh, in indoctrinating black people. By the way, the person that called me the black face of white supremacy, her initials are Erica D. Smith. Oops. I invited her on my radio show. Uh, after the campaign was over to explain why it is I'm the black face of white supremacy. And she refused to come on because she didn't have enough to defend her position. By the way, we've mentioned Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Louis Farrakhan. Over the 30 years I was on radio, Gareth, I invited all of them on an average of maybe 50 times over the course of my career. Not a single one would come on the radio. Now, if I am uh, a, an enemy of black people, the black face of white supremacy, it seems to me I would have an obligation if I were Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton or Louis Farrakhan to come on my show and put me in my place, but none of them has because, well, William F. Buckley once said, after 30 years of having a program uh, on PBS, was asked, why is it that Robert Kennedy, who was a longtime senator and AG, uh, under John Kennedy, never came on your program. And he said, and I'm quoting, 
why does a baloney avoid the grinder? <laughs> Larry, let's talk about something that's happened recently, which everybody in the world is kind of perplexed by, and it must have confused a lot of Americans too. Um, President Trump, who's been out of office for more than a year and a half now, um, isn't really in the headlines as much. He's certainly not on social media because he's been banned by Twitter. Just the other day, the FBI raided his house at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, they tell us that this is because he's concealing top secret documents, which have to do with the nuclear program, which he's not allowed to be in possession of. Um, all of this uh, is, is bound to do two things. First of all, raise a lot of eyebrows, uh, both on the Democrat and Republican side. And there were interesting tweets from people as diverse as um, who was the guy who I saw tweeting about this? One of the one of the Congress people uh, was saying on the Democrat side that this is probably going to do more damage to the FBI's r- kind of PR and and their reputation and the institutional reputation of so many government agencies, which people believe are already captured. That's a word that I'm sad to say South Africa has, uh, thanks to our state capture by our former president. Um, it's a word that we've contributed to the lexicon. But there are so many things going on underground here in terms of the political machinations. And this is the kind of environment that's rife for conspiracy theory. So you're a man whose insight into these things I respect. You've watched the news. You've participated in the news. You know some of these people. Uh, what actually is happening here? Is this, this a dirty trick or is it part of some conspiracy to propel Donald Trump to the top and to cut out people like I don't know, DeSantis or someone else? Well, uh, that's a broad question. Uh, Let me just say this first. Both sides in America are dug in. The people that support Donald Trump are going to support him pretty much no matter what the FBI turns up regarding their search of Mar-a-Lago. And people that hate Donald Trump's guts are always going to hate his guts no matter what happens. Here's what bothers me. What bothers me are are the double standards, uh, what I call a two-tiered system of justice. Let's assume, for example, that this raid on Mar-a-Lago uh, was valid, that Donald Trump had taken documents he wasn't supposed to take, and they couldn't figure out some sort of way of negotiating the return of those documents, and therefore the FBI had to do what they had to do. There are lots of examples where the FBI should have uh, used the same tactics on the Democratic side, but they chose not to, most notably Hillary Clinton. She had a unsecured server in her basement yep. on which she sent and received classified information. She lied about it and said she didn't. And then she said, well, I didn't send or receive information that was stamp classified. She lied about that. She did send or receive information that was stamp classified. That was an apparent violation of the Espionage Act. But the FBI had a big presentation, outlined all the things that Hillary did at the last minute, said, but she lacked the intent. Therefore, we're not going to prosecute her. Well, if you read the Espionage Act and the part that she allegedly violated, it doesn't require intent. Yet she skated. Mm. Uh, there's in a... a the attorney general under Barack Obama named Eric Holder. Eric Holder was subpoenaed to turn over documents regarding a program called Fast and Furious. It was a gun walking program where the government, for reasons that still puzzle me, allowed illegal guns to flow to our southern border, presumably in order to catch cartels buying them. But the guns ended up uh, in the hands of people on both sides of the border. One of them was used to kill a U.S. Border Patrol agent. So Congress subpoenaed records from Eric Holder about this program called Fast and Furious. Eric Holder did not turn over the documents, became the first sitting AG to be found in criminal contempt of Congress. Uh, the Republicans took him to court, and ultimately a Obama judge allowed them to negotiate back and forth for almost five years. After five years, finally, we think all the documents were turned over. I say we think because uh, Jason Chavis, who was then in the House, He's now a Fox News uh, pundit, uh, does not believe all the documents were turned over. 
Uh, under Bill Clinton, there was a national security guy named Sandy Berger. They were doing an investigation about 9-11, about whether or not the Bill Clinton administration should have done things, uh, could have done things in order to, to, uh, to prevent 9-11 from happening. So Sandy Berger goes to the National Archive to prepare for his testimony, and literally, Gareth, takes documents out of the National Archives, stuffs them in his pants, and destroys them. He was given a slap on the wrist. His uh, uh, security clearance was taken away for about three years. He had to pay a fine, and that's about all that happened to him. There's a woman named Lois Lerner, who was the head of the IRS tax-exempt section. She was denying the applications of conservative charities for tax-exempt purposes for their donors. Uh, she was subpoenaed. She took the fifth. She was allowed to retire uh, with her a pension and lives in a nice suburban home in Washington, D.C. So these examples are examples that people like myself raise to say, why isn't the standard the same? And it does not appear the standard the same. And one more big point. What Donald Trump is being accused of is pushing the so-called big lie about 2020. He claims the election was stolen. Whether you feel that way or not, Hillary has said the same thing about 2016 for the entirety of President Trump's presidency. She referred to him as, quote, unquote, illegitimate, and she called the 2016 election stolen to the point where 66 percent of Democrats believe, according to a YouGov poll, that the Russians, quote, changed vote tallies, close quote, to elect Donald Trump. Now, this was investigated 2016, a thousand page report by the Senate, and they made two major conclusions. Number one, the Russians tried to change vote tallies. No question about it. But they failed to change a single one. Yet again, 66% of Democrats believe the Russians changed vote tallies. Second finding, we don't know whether or not the Russian interference altered uh, public opinion or altered the outcome of the election. We'd have to have a world where there was interference and one where there wasn't to tell. We don't know. Yet 78% of Democrats, according to Gallup, believe the Russian interference, quote, altered the outcome of the election, close quote, in favor of Trump. In other words, my long way of saying this, a greater percentage of Democrats believe 2016 was stolen than Republicans who feel the same way about 2020. Yet Hillary's social media platforms were never shut down. She's on Twitter. She's on IG. Uh, she's on Facebook. Donald Trump is on none of them because of pushing the so-called big lie. Again, the double standard is what fries a lot of people, including me. So there are a lot of things going on here, and I can't help thinking that no matter what happens in these midterm elections uh, people are saying that the republicans are going to make a sweep of it other people are saying well you know the the, the social media platforms uh the media the mainstream media are all gearing up to help the democrats to to w withstand any kind of counter reaction but as you've pointed out already and you said it just now that things are increasingly becoming polarized and yeah. you do hear some people Obviously, these are extremists, but talking about how there's like a cold civil war going on between the right and the left in America. And just like in any country, there's the majority of people in the middle who are not pulled to either extreme, who actually listen to what's being said. They watch what's being done. They feel how it feels when their own pocket becomes lighter. Uh, they know what it means when they go to the gas station and they try to fill up and it costs them a lot more money. They know what it's like to find jobs or not find jobs and to be paid a decent salary. And those people are not really extreme right or left wing people. So the average American has probably got the kind of opinions that you couldn't call left or right. But they're being pulled in one direction or the other by, you know, the wheel of, of fortune that keeps on, on turning. And we keep hearing that, you know, Joe Biden has managed the economy very, very badly. He's created all this inflation. Uh, we also hear that the that the left has maybe taken it too far when it comes to 
gender and race politics. Do you believe that those are the factors that will determine the votes in this upcoming election? And how do you think people, even in a state like yours, will vote? Here's the problem. The, the media are dominated by the left. They're dominated by people who can't stand Donald Trump. So if you're uh, just somebody trying to put food on the table, uh, trying to make sure your, your kids get to and from school safely, you're still going to ingest news from CNN, uh, ABC, NBC, MSNBC, whether you want to or not. And the problem is they are so blatantly biased. The Washington Post and New York Times are the two most important newspapers in America. The Washington Post has never ever endorsed a Republican for president. I repeat, never endorsed a Republican for president. The New York Times has not endorsed one since 1956. And there was a poll, NBC poll, in 2016 when Donald Trump was running, and likely voters were asked, what is the number one reason you dislike Donald Trump? And the number one reason, Gareth, they gave is that Donald Trump, quote, mocked a disabled reporter, close quote. He did no such thing. The reporter in question, his name is Serge Kowaleski. He worked for one of the major newspapers. Uh, and Donald Trump publicly said when the towers fell on 9-11, there were people, Muslims, that were celebrating the fall. And, of course, because Donald Trump is Donald Trump, everything he says is fact-checked by the media, and they accused him of lying. So Donald Trump mm-hmm. produced an article written by this reporter who said just that, that there were people cheering the fall of the wall. They went to that guy and they asked him about the story. And then he began to backpedal. He said, well, I'm not sure it was that many. I'm not sure it was as many as Donald Trump says. And then in a, in a speech, Donald Trump mocked him. He said, they went to the guy. And he goes, oh, I'm not sure. I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. And began waving his hands like this. Now, this reporter uh, does have a disability. Uh, I forget the, the word for it, some long word. He doesn't go like this. His arm is yeah. active. He holds, it, he holds it like this. And he speaks very calmly. And, and there's a website that showed Donald Trump using that gesture to mock himself, to mock an able-bodied general, to mock other people. He's used that, that gesture for years. But much of the country is convinced that Donald Trump mocked a disabled reporter. So this is the kind of crap that we put out. It was also put out that Donald Trump said there were good Nazis and bad Nazis regarding Charlottesville. He said no such thing. He was talking about there are good people and bad people on both sides of the issue, whether or not there should be a Confederate monument in the public square. But that's also been misinterpreted. So much of what you're hearing about Republicans, about Donald Trump, about conservatism is simply distorted, twisted, if not outright lied about. And that's why so many people in in this country, in my opinion, are ill-informed. You know, there's there's so much of this that is um, reminiscent of things that we've discussed in South Africa for such a long time. And there are now obviously many parallels between America and South Africa, because we've got both got, you know, these these histories of of colonialism. We've certainly got the histories of segregation in South Africa. It was it was law for a much longer time in terms of our country's um, age. But obviously, I can't help thinking when I hear about these kinds of stories that it seems that, 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 that religion or the absence of religion is a major factor in the way people are behaving politically. And I know you said earlier that conservatives believe in family, in working hard, and in God. And I wonder if if you have any comments on what's happened to people who've either given up on religion, given up on work, or given up on family, and whether or not those kinds of things would push you in a certain direction politically. I think they do. I think if you give up on religion, uh, you give up on the notion uh, of, of right and wrong, of good and evil of family, of hard work, of thrift, 
of personal responsibility. Uh, and when you give up on education, you are easily misled and manipulated. Let me give you another example. This business about systemic racism. If you ask majority of black people whether or not systemic racism exists, I, I suspect a majority of them would say yes. But look at what's going on. Virtually every major city in America has or has had a black mayor. Uh, we've had black senators, black governors. Uh, there was a, a high profile police death in Baltimore in 2016, I believe it was. A man named Freddie Gray was in a police van, black man, and uh, he ended up being killed in the van, uh, probably because he wasn't strapped down and his head hit the van as they were making a sharp turn. He broke his neck and died. And all of a sudden, Baltimore uh, Police Department is now systemically racist. Let's back up. At the time, the mayor of Baltimore was black. The number one and number two people running the police department were black. All of city council, Democrat, majority black. There were six officers who were tried, three of them black. Uh, two of the officers tried their case before a black judge uh, who found them, by the way, not guilty. The state attorney who brought the charges against the six black, uh, black cops was black. The United States attorney at the time, Loretta Lynch, was black. The president of the United States was black. And I'm reminded of a joke that a comedian named Wanda Sykes once said. She said, how are you going to complain about the man when you are the man? So blacks are running the system top to bottom in Baltimore. Yet when this happened, a bunch of people hit the streets and yelled and screamed about systemic racism. It it just flies in the face of what's going on in the real world. Uh, a lot of people are interested in your own political ambitions. You've now created all of this incredible content over your 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 long and, and distinguished career. You have stood up for, in your case, what you believe is is the truth and what you've proven over and over again. And you can cite numbers and you can cite statistics, you can cite history, and you can cite your own experience. Of course, the lived experience is all that matters to the left. But all of those things uh, you could be objective about too. But what next? I mean, you know, Larry, you, 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 you've, got the, uh, you've got the ability to, to, to speak clearly about things. People must be talking to you, trying to get you to take up political office. You've played a role not only as a journalist and and a talk show host, but also as an activist in some cases. As I mentioned earlier, you, uh, you were at the forefront of the campaign to have uh, Gavin Newsom recalled, the, the governor of California. That didn't happen in the end, but no. it was a close-run thing. Well it, well, it was. I got, uh, it, as you know, it was a two-step deal. The first part is 50% plus one had to vote to recall Gavin Newsom. That didn't happen. Uh, had he mm -hmm. been recalled, whoever got the greatest number of votes on the replacement side would have become governor. There were 45 candidates on the replacement side. I got 3.5 million votes. That's pretty much more than all of the other 45 combined. We got into the race with seven and a half weeks left. We raised $22 million, more than all of the major Republican rivals on the replacement side combined. California has 58 counties, and we carried 57 to 58. The only one we didn't carry was San Francisco, and I lost that by 149 votes and didn't spend one minute campaigning there or one dime on TV or radio ads. So by any stretch, it was an extraordinary campaign, 150,000 individual donors. Half of them came from outside of California. And I was asked all over the state, and as I've gone around the country, what's next? Why don't you run for president? And I'm giving it very serious thought. I have a political action committee. It's called elderforamerica.com. Uh, but it was set up to help Republicans take back the House, take back the Senate, campaign in favor of school choice, campaign to get rid of these soft on crime DAs, campaign to get rid of critical race theory, and for initiatives to support strong families. But after that, I'm giving strong consideration to considering 
running for president. I'm not going to attack Donald Trump, not going to attack Ron DeSantis, who may get in the race, or Mike Pompeo, who may get in the race. I have my own things I want to talk about, most notably what government has done to destroy the family, and that we have to get back to entrepreneurship and get back to God uh, and lose these ridiculous soft on crime DAs that are causing black people uh, to be killed in extraordinary historic numbers. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the the recall of so many of these DAs. It just right. happened in, in in San Francisco, right? Uh, there was That's a there was a soft on crime DA there who was who was taken out by the community. They eventually decided to recall the guy. His name is Chesa Bodine, and he received support from Governor Gavin Newsom. He was recalled with over sixty percent of the vote in San Francisco. Unfortunately, there was a recall effort to recall the LA County DA George Gascon. Uh, who uh, who got his first job from uh, from Gavin Newsom, but there weren't enough signatures, enough ballot signatures filed. So he's not going to face a recall election come November, as some of us had hoped for and as some of us had predicted. Maybe if they'd had mail-in votes, it would have worked a bit better. Um, and, and of, of course, the other thing that's going on is that school boards all over the country are being reviewed by parents, uh, by, by families who are concerned about the way that their kids are being raised and the things their kids are being taught at school. Um, and of course, this is where you've got to give it to the left. They, they kind of saw education as being primary and they took over in many ways uh, the education, the public school education of so many Americans. It's going to be very difficult to unseat them from that. Well, consider this. Uh, eight, 85% of black eighth graders, according to national tests, 85% are neither math nor reading proficient. That means 85% of black eighth graders are functionally illiterate in America. Uh, and we're spending more money than ever on education. It's not about the money. Uh, it's all about the quality of education, the fact that we don't have school choice. And, and look at this, around 10% of American families have their kids in private school. Roughly 6% of black families do. 44% of Philadelphia government school teachers with school-age kids put their own kids in private school. 39% of Chicago government school teachers put their own kids in private school. I have said it's the equivalent of opening up a restaurant, putting up a big sign saying, come on in, eat the food. We sure won't. <laughs> well, the, the the Republicans are looking like they're in a very favorable position, both for the, the midterms that are coming up and also for the presidential election, which will be in another two and a half years from now. But what do you think of the possible entry into the game by Michelle Obama. People are saying that she could be the savior candidate for the Dems. Not going to happen. Not going to happen because Kamala Harris wants to be president. And the only way she leaves is she says, I want to go. I'm not competent. I'm out of here. Because as I said, uh, black are the blacks are the most loyal part of the Democratic Party. Black females are more or even more loyal. There's zero evidence that Michelle Obama wants to do it. She's never said she wants to do it. I don't believe she has a temperament to be a politician. Uh, I think she's easily angered. This is the one who said, for the first time in my life, I'm proud of America. She often complained about being uh, in the in the fishbowl as being a, a, the first lady. Uh, she doesn't like politics. And uh, the only way you can replace Kamala Harris is replace her with another black female. And the only likely one would be would be Michelle Obama. She's not going to do it. Hmm. Well, Larry, if you're going to be president one day, I think it'll shake everybody up. It'll certainly get some things right. And I think you'll be able to make an enormous difference. But I, I wish you the best of luck. It's been great to talk to you again. I hope that we'll continue to touch base over the next few years and keep an eye on your uh, political career, as well as the incredible contribution that you make to 
uh, understanding what's going on in this uh, in this society around us. And obviously, we didn't get a chance to talk about Russia and the Ukraine. We didn't get a chance to talk about a whole bunch of things, which we could at another stage. But I know you're a busy man, and I really appreciate your time. Just uh, tell everybody they can watch Uncle Tom 1 for free by going to UncleTom.com. They can pre-order Uncle Tom 2 by going to UncleTom.com. And it comes out on August 26th. It will be streamed on SalemNow.com. Fantastic. Larry, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you.